All the way back on episode 5 of the SSR podcast, I tackled the first book in the classic Nancy Drew series, The Secret of the Old Clock. It's only taken two years, but we are finally circling back to our girl, Nancy. Today's episode is all about the fourth book in the series, The Mystery at Lilac Inn. Listeners, I am really excited about this one. I'm not going to get into the details of the plot right now because, I'll be honest, the plot was a little confusing, but we talk all about that on today's episode, and so much more. On episode 112, we cover some of the publishing history of Nancy Drew, swap notes on our experiences with these books as kids, and have a thoughtful conversation about how we can simultaneously respect the important role that Nancy Drew has played for feminism and literature, while also being critical of certain elements when we come at the series from a contemporary perspective. Yes, those things can happen at the same time. Specifically, we discuss the way the mystery at Lilac Inn portrays wealth, privilege, race, class, appearance, and even law enforcement. If you've been listening to the show for a while, or if you're active on Bookstagram yourself, you are probably already familiar with my guests. Today, I am lucky enough to welcome Chelsea of Chelsea Reads and Sarah from Fiction Matters back to the pod. Both of these awesome ladies have guested individually on SSR in the past, and today they come together with me for the ultimate book-loving girl chat. If this episode sounds to you like a bunch of friends hanging out, it's because that's exactly what it is. Chelsea and Sarah are the best, and I'm so grateful they agreed to do a second episode of SSR, especially when I know they both have their hands full with their own podcast, Novel Pairings. On each episode, the hosts discuss one classic book and share their recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. It's fun and fascinating and not super academic, and you'll be sure to walk away every time with a long list of books to add to your TBR. Follow Novel Pairings on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod and on Twitter at Novel Pairings. You can follow Chelsea on Instagram at Chelsea Reads and Sarah on Instagram at Fiction Matters. I'm about to throw a few more social media handles your way, but don't get overwhelmed by them because I will list all of them in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 112. Here's where to follow SSR on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at SSRpod, and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. There's a little more chatter happening in the podcast's smaller Facebook group, which you can find by searching The SSR Podcast Community. Come say hey. If you are interacting with the pod on social media, it would be fantastic if you could share about it to your followers too. Post a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story, tweet about your favorite episode, or tell all of your book-loving Facebook friends that they just have to give the show a listen. Like it or not, social media plays a huge role in our lives now, and it's a great way to share the love and give your followers the chance to enjoy something that you're enjoying, like this podcast. You can also support SSR by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, shopping for SSR merch at www.ssrpodcast.com slash shop or becoming a Patreon sponsor. As a patron, you'll contribute a few dollars every month to the production of SSR, and you'll get some very cool rewards in return. SSR merch, bonus episodes, newsletters, input on book selection, it's all up for grabs. I'm a big fan of Patreon because it really allows independent creators like me to connect with the people who love what we create. I appreciate the Patreon community so much, and I could not have continued to grow the show the way I have without their support. If you want to come on board, you can visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. We are all continuing to hunker down in our homes, and if you're sick of binge-watching Netflix or scrolling through TikTok, you might consider making audiobooks a bigger part of your media diet. If you're up for that, you should give Libro.fm a try. Libro.fm is a platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. The audiobooks are the same price too. You can support any indie you want if they're partnered with Libro.fm, so choose a local favorite or send some love to a store you've dreamed of visiting for years. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Tell me what you're listening to over on social media. I am always looking for recommendations. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. 
So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having us again. This is such a treat because not only do I get to have you both back on knowing that you're wonderful guests and humans and friends, but also we all get to be on together. This is, we were saying before, it's like girl time. (laughs) We don't even know what to say. We're so excited. It's harder with three people. I know. But we'll get into the rhythm. (laughs) We're going to get into the rhythm. It's going to be great. You guys are going to be great as always. So we're talking about Nancy Drew today. And so a couple of things about Nancy before we get into it. So maybe longtime listeners will remember that I did a Nancy Drew episode all the way back for episode five, which now seems like a million years ago. I feel like it's like dog years where like in podcasting, like two years in podcast time counts as like 10 years of lifetime. So I remember very little about that experience. For some reason, another Nancy Drew book just like hasn't hit my radar since then or like my guests haven't really wanted to do another Nancy Drew book. But I remember being so proud of that episode and I thought about going back to listen to it, but then I was afraid because I was like, it probably isn't as, as good as I remember. <laughs> but I think it was like the first interview that I did. And I also just remember feeling like I, I remember feeling like I was really funny on that episode. Like that's my number one thing where I was like, wow, I nailed it. <laughs> I went back and listened to it and you should. It's really good. Really? Thanks. That's yes. really nice. You're only saying that because <laughs> you're my right. friend. <laughs> Maybe, but we all need that kind of support. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so that's my Nancy Drew memory and I have been hoping to do another Nancy Drew book. I was very critical of Nancy in that episode. So I was sort of preparing for that. And because there are now more people who listen to the show and engage with the show, I got a lot of DMs when I posted the picture of the book of people who are like, oh my gosh, so excited, can't wait. And then I got a couple of messages from people who were like, I have a feeling that you're going to rip this apart. And like, even with all of the problematic things that go on now from our perspective in 2020, like you have to understand the context. And I was like, yes, noted, of course. And I'll say up front, like, I I don't feel quite as, like, fired up going into this episode as I did about the first book. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're talking about the fourth book in the series. It's called The Mystery at Lilac Inn. And before we dive in, I'd love for both of you, one of you, whoever wants to talk about your experience with Nancy Drew. And we went back and forth quite a bit about what book we were going to talk about today. And we ultimately settled on this one, largely because it's a classic. And of course, if listeners aren't aware of your show, Novel Pairings, there's a huge emphasis on classics on that podcast. And it's awesome. But we settled on Nancy because it is a classic. And I'd love to chat a little bit more about your personal experiences with and memories of our girl, Nancy Drew. Well, this is funny because... Of course, we were all three trying to decide what book, but Sarah and I were kind of having a side conversation of like, okay, this is what Allie recommended. What do we want to talk about? And I went, I'm staying with my parents for the summer. And so I went into the storage closet and pulled out some of the books from my childhood and found all of my mom's vintage copies of Nancy Drew, which she had when she was little. And then I read when I was a kid. And so that kind of sealed the deal for me. I texted Sarah some pictures of those and I was like, okay, we need to do Nancy because I have these great books. It's so cool that you have those. They're really, I mean, they have two Nancy Drew mysteries in them. So this one has the bungalow mystery and the mystery at Lilac Inn. And it's like basically falling apart here. I'll hold it up at least for you guys. But they're really cool. I'll definitely send you some pictures, Allie, so you can post them in the Facebook group or whatever. But they have illustrations in them and they're the 1961 editions and they do have a special place in my heart. Did you love Nancy when you were growing up? Were you a big fan of hers? I did. I was obsessed. I read so many Nancy Drew books and I read through all of the set that my mom has and then read a bunch from the library too. And so it was really, really fascinating (laughs) to read these as an adult because the last time I read Nancy, I was probably like 11 maybe. And what a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Sarah, what about you? So Chelsea sent me pictures of the Nancy Drew book she had at her house. And then I just Googled best Nancy Drew books and mystery at Lilac Inn, I think was ranked number 
three or something on BuzzFeed's list, and the description just sold me. It was like, shark attacks, a Nancy Drew impersonator, <laughs> a submarine. Like, just, it It sounded crazy, and it, the book definitely lived up to the crazy description that, that BuzzFeed gave it. And Chelsea's copy of this particular one was falling apart, so we thought this would be a great Nancy Drew. I definitely read these as a kid, but I think that I read more of the... I don't know if they were more contemporary, like set in more contemporary times or just written more recently, but the like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys mysteries where they like teamed up. I read a a lot of those. I think maybe more than the classic ones. Yeah. Sarah, you know I have the Wikipedia lowdown on all of this. Okay, good. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I've already warned you both that I was a little overwhelmed by the uh, just like the breadth of Nancy Drew scholarship online. So I don't feel like I dove into quite as much detail this time around as I did for the first Nancy Drew episode, which I will, of course, link in the show notes. But the first set of books started to be published in 1930. And um, between 1930 and 1959, it was kind of like the early days of Nancy Drew. She was supposedly, as a character, more outspoken and authoritative. And the publisher, Edward Stratemeyer, who who incidentally was a man, thought that she would not be well-received because of that. And so after that, there were some revisions made to the books starting in 1960 and 1961. So the books that had been published in the 30 years prior were updated. The character of Nancy Drew was changed, make her a little bit softer. But there were also a lot of racist and problematic references and language that were taken out from that first batch of books. So that was kind of like the the very early days of the series. And then um, I remember that sort of like more contemporary vibe as well. Sarah, I read those. I believe that that was sort of the sub-series called The Nancy Drew Files. I remember the cover art being very different. I mentioned this on the first Nancy Drew episode, but I have a very clear memory of one title where she goes and solves a mystery at a Renaissance fair, um, (laughs) which I was really into at the time. And so I believe that was part of the Nancy Drew Files. There were all of these different like sub-series that have have since come out. And even now there's like new graphic novel editions coming out. There was a CW series that I, I think only lasted a year that premiered in 2019. So there was a lot of like excitement about Nancy Drew and some new kinds of like franchise extensions published into the into the universe. So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Nancy. And for me, it's like a little overwhelming just to even know where to start. But I am glad you picked this one because it's it's wild. And from what I remember about the first book in the series, The Case of the Old Clock, the, the action is much more mellow. Like this book did feel, to echo you, like it felt like a ride. And not only because I was trying to parse out some of the older school language and like really wrap my head around Nancy as a character, there was just a lot going on. And she it was more physical and I felt like there was more sleuthing in the first book. I remember being very critical because I was like, I remember her being, I remember her being more of a detective and she like didn't really seem to be a detective in the first book. And I was excited because I really think we got that in this one. I have a confession. This is backtracking a little bit, but I have a confession that I think you'll both enjoy. I can't wait. Um, I never read any of the Nancy Drew files or any of those other more modern sets of the Nancy Drew mysteries because I was obsessed with only reading the classic Nancy Drew when I was a kid. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And that's why you are now the host of Novel Pairings. (laughs) As you two are talking about these, I was like, gosh, I remember I really didn't like those covers. And I thought that's not the Nancy that I know. And I was really (laughs) adamant about having specific Nancy covers and only reading the classics. And what a little snob. I kind of love that about you, though. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's a so. great anecdote. Thank you so much for sharing. Love Nancy that. and I go way back. I love it. So also another fun fact, I just talked about all of these different subseries. There are over 600 individual Nancy Drew-related books, which is wild. Like I thought the Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley had a lot of books. This is out of control. And to think that they were only published because Edward Stratemeyer had been so successful with the Hardy Boys that he wanted to replicate that with a quote-unquote girl audience. Like he was not some feminist. He was not all about introducing this strong female character into the world. He just wanted to replicate what had happened with the Hardy Boys. So think about the fact that like that's what started all of this. It's kind of crazy. That is crazy. And I definitely feel like maybe it's be this is because I'm a girl but I definitely feel like Nancy has outlasted and outlived the Hardy Boys 
in terms of her success and how we still talk about her. And so many women leaders talk about Nancy as being inspiring to them. It, it seems like she's now outshining the Hardy Boys. Did you? Did either of you ever read the Hardy Boys? I still haven't. I need to for the podcast. I only read the crossover one. So if Nancy was there, I would read the Hardy Boys books, but I've never read just a Hardy Boys book. Got it. I think I read one, but it didn't leave much of a lasting impression on me. I wasn't interested in them. (laughs) I mean, when you have Nancy, like, why do you need to read about the Hardy Boys? Pass. Exactly. (laughs) So some more specific things about this book. So it was part of that first batch of Nancy Drew titles that came out. My understanding is that there were like four or five that were all published at one time in 1930. They were pretty much immediately successful. We don't have like sales figures, but by all accounts online, uh, they made a splash pretty much right out of the gate. And all of the books were written by ghostwriters, and and the the pseudonym for all of them was agreed upon as Carolyn Keene. There was no actual Carolyn Keene, but there was one ghostwriter in particular who wrote a lot of these first books. Her name was Mildred Wirt Benson, and she wrote, I believe, 23 of the first 25 or 30 books. So she's, like, widely acknowledged as, like, really the brainchild of this series. Fun fact, she was paid somewhere between $125 and $250 per book. (laughs) Oh my gosh. With I th- a very small percentage of royalties, which like it's, I mean, yes, of course it was many years ago, but that's crazy. Yeah. And you don't really hear of like the Carol there obviously because it was, they were all ghostwritten, but there's no Carolyn Keene like foundation or like family trust. So all those royalties just went to Edward. Ugh, I hope not. Sorry if there's any That's Edward Stratemeyer <laughs> descendants listening, but we need to spread that wealth around. <laughs> so I'd love to know, because you both had some familiarity with the series and with Nancy as a character, and maybe you kind of had a sense of like what my issues had been with my earlier read of Nancy, like what were your expectations going in to this reread? Because I think that's really important. I certainly had a set after my first experience where I was like going really hard on Nancy. And I sort of regret that those are my expectations now because I, I do think it colored my reading experience of this a little bit. So I'd love to to know what you were thinking going into it. So I tried to replicate my childhood reading experience and I read the entire mystery at Lilac Inn last night at bedtime. I love because that. Because I would stay up and read these and read them past my bedtime flashlight under the covers. So I didn't have a flashlight under the covers, but <laughs> I did give your cell phone like flashlight. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I did try and replicate that experience and it just wasn't the same. I thought that I would get this page turning mystery. And in some ways, like I wanted to see how the puzzle came together. And I was curious to sort of remember the events and what happened. But I just kept thinking like, this is just not well-crafted suspense. Yeah. A little bit of a letdown. Yeah. All right. Sarah, what about you? Yeah. I, I was expecting to have issues with a lot of the gender stuff in the novel. Like I just knew going in that that would be something that I would be critical of and notice. And that met my expectations. (laughs) But I didn't think that the mystery would be more compelling. And I felt like, again, I, I, I agree with Chelsea that it wasn't the page turner I wanted it to be. I felt like what was compelling me more through the book rather than the mystery was just like, what crazy shit is going to happen next in this book because (laughs) she just keeps adding more and more to it and I wanted to see what was going to come next so that that part was fun like just how (laughs) yeah the whole thing was it was entertaining yeah totally entertaining but also sometimes boring (laughs) in terms of the mystery element like I yeah I wanted more suspense like you said Chelsea but the just the antics were entertaining. My single word for this book is muddled. <laughs> and maybe it's because I've been watching a lot of Top Chef lately, and that's a very common criticism of Top Chef dishes is like, this dish is muddled. Like, lots of great components, but it's muddled. Or at least that's the language they were using in, like, 2011, because Matt and I are doing, like, deep dive into the the olden days of Top Chef. But that was the word that I kept thinking of was like, I I feel confused. And I and I I don't know if I'm really tired or if I've just been doing a lot of recordings lately. But I don't think that's it because I just feel like there's a lot 
going on. And I didn't really expect that because I do remember the first book in the series while being generally like disappointing, it felt very clear. Like I don't remember being very confused about the action. It all made sort of linear sense to me. And I also was thinking about the fact that like if we all ate these up to some degree when we were kids, like why do I why am I having so much trouble following it now? But I also and we've talked about this on other episodes of the podcast. I think that sometimes as kids we like aren't so in the details like where we're trying to track every moment and like trying to really follow a whole mystery plot. And I actually don't read a ton of mysteries now, so that's something new for me as well. But as an adult, I feel so in the weeds about making sure that I actually know like what each character's backstory is and how all the characters are connected. So I feel like maybe that slowed me down a little bit, but it just, the whole thing felt a little bit muddled. That makes sense. And there was a lot, I mean, things were happening in quick succession and it was like, that got wrapped up really fast. And then the next thing gets wrapped up really fast and you just move from point to point. And maybe as a kid, that's really satisfying. Like bad things happen. It turns out, okay, we move on. And like you said, the the nuance wasn't there, but I didn't need that when I was eight. But now I'm like, hair color is not a personality trait. I would like to know (laughs) more about these people rather than just their hair color and height. And how slim or how slim they are. Are they dainty or are they slim? One or the other. <laughs> right. And which so, is thinner? Or like, are they the one character whose clothes fit a little too tight? <laughs> and that's suspicious. That always means something strange is afoot. But really, like, what is the difference between dainty and slim? Like, I do feel like the author of this book had a really lovely thesaurus on her desk. And it was open to, like, thin And we have used all of the synonyms for the word thin in this book. Like this is, I know that you guys are both teachers. Like this is a great example of like, look at all the different words you can use to mean the same thing. (laughs) It's just unfortunate that the word that we're diversifying is for thinness. But yes, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like character typing based on looks and because I read that other Nancy Drew book not so long ago, I was sort of conditioned to look for the descriptions of characters that were like slightly less positive um, in nature. And so unfortunately, like that kind of was a tip off to me pretty quickly that like, oh, this this is not a friendly description. So that has to mean something. I liked the setup of the book. Um, I'll say that up front. I thought it was really fun that Nancy was like kind of going on a girl's trip She and her gal pal Helen were driving to the Lilac Inn to visit Emily, their other friend. Excuse any page-turning listeners. I'm just checking out the first page of the book um, and reviewing all of these hilarious, um, like, introductory descriptions about these characters, all of whom are, yes, beautiful and thin. So they're driving to the Lilac Inn. Emily is recently engaged, and she and her fiancé are renovating this inn, which I actually thought was super cool. Like, there was something about that that felt very contemporary to me and felt really entrepreneurial, very, like, HGTV-esque. So that was interesting to me, and I wanted to know more about Emily and her fiancé, whose name, I believe, was Dick. And, like, I wanted to, to like, be on the ride with them, like, while they were picking things out and, like, <laughs> making design decisions. Like, that was so cool, and it did feel sort of out of place in this world where, for the most part, our female characters aren't doing those kinds of projects. I mean, yes, Nancy is a detective, but most of her detective work, if not all, takes place in the context of things that other people are asking her to do or inviting her to do. It was really refreshing to see a character like Emily, who, yes, while she was in partnership with her fiance, was like doing something totally different. Yeah, I really liked that element, too. I thought that was super fun to be at the inn and kind of hear that backstory. I'm sure we'll get into this a lot, but I had a lot of issues with the way different classes were represented in the book and the fact that it was kind of okay for Emily to do this because she was going to inherit these diamonds and be able to invest that money in the inn was a little, I mean, not weird. It made a lot of sense for the (laughs) ultimate outcome of the book. But yeah, I wish more had been revealed and focused on with the renovations and why they were choosing to do that and what business backgrounds they both had and that kind of thing, rather than just, and you're about to inherit all of these diamonds on your 21st birthday, so then you can do so much in the world. Yeah, because both of her parents died in a plane crash and they yes. just glossed right over <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it was like so that. casual. 
Yeah. Oh, her parents died in a plane crash. Now she gets diamonds and she's just totally fine. She's like, can I get them a little early for the end? It's for the end. <laughs> <laughs> I just need them a touch early. So once we get there, I, that, I, look, I started to get confused almost immediately. <laughs> Am I the only one who found all of these characters very interchangeable? All of the young women had like very, I don't want to say forgettable names because that's not the right word, but like it was Helen and Mary and Maude and Nancy and Emily. And I, I could not for the life of me keep track of all of them. And that started pretty early. Yeah. And they're all alliterative. So it's Doris Drake and Mary Mason. And that makes it even harder. Yeah, Nancy Girelli stands up, you know, on her own, not being an alliterative name. Yeah, I got confused immediately, and and Maude, I couldn't figure out for the longest time who she was, how old she was supposed to be, who she was connected to. She was the, like, social director of the inn, which I don't even know what that means. She didn't seem to be doing any work, ever. There wasn't any socializing happening. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there there wasn't any socializing. Yeah, I agree. I was pretty much confused from the get-go. What were your first impressions of one John McBride, who is our first, like, dashing male character? I think he's more fun than Ned. I'll say it. I think (laughs) that he and Nancy did more than skin diving (laughs) in in my fan fiction. (laughs) Chelsea's going to be spending some quarantine time writing a new batch of John, that totally makes sense because John McBride is what an army sergeant. So that's true. Um, Excuse me, but he's a major. He was just undercover. Chelsea, I need you to explain to me which is higher. Cause I don't know. Major is the higher rank, okay. so he was like posing as think he was trying like, to make sure that he wasn't as important as he is. But it's yeah. a big deal. I thought that he was bad news. Yeah, <laughs> I I was on to him the whole time, and spoiler alert, I was wrong. He is not a bad guy, but the whole book, I was just, and I don't I don't know if that's what I was supposed to think. Like, did I just play directly into their hands? But I decided right up front, I was like, there's something not right about this guy. And I don't know if it's because, like, he's just, like, one of the only men in the book. And I just felt that that meant something. Or if I, I don't know, I I was really, I was unfair to him throughout the book because I just assumed that he was the villain. I totally thought that too. And so did Helen. Helen was suspicious of him. True. But as soon as Nancy's dad, Carson Drew, was like, oh, no, 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 he's a great guy. I knew that he was not going to be the villain because we needed another man to come in and assure us that this man was a good man. And then we could rest easy that Nancy was flirting with a nice guy. Well, especially if it's Carson Drew. Like, if it's Carson Drew, then you have to trust him. Yeah, because he owns the entire town and he's <laughs> about him. So he knows. He knows. Um, I did, <laughs> I wrote down John equals red herring in my book. <laughs> And guess who fell for it? Me. (laughs) Um, But there was one part, and Nancy is about to go out for her skin diving date, which is basically scuba diving, but skin diving makes it sound so dirty. It sounded so dirty. I mean, it was very cool that she was, like, skin diving certified and such a surprise. Right. Like, when did you have the time? You're solving all these mysteries. When are you doing the training? Yeah, I well, I like that we we learned that she can skin dive because we just happened to a character just happens to pull out the newspaper and there's like a big picture of her <laughs> on the front page of the newspaper for receiving her skin diving certification. Right. I also didn't know that people like scuba dive in rivers. I did not yeah, either. I, I had no I idea. I don't think they do. It's just <laughs> in a really big river though because there's a whole submarine in it, but we'll get to that. Yeah, listeners, but, if you're a scuba diver who's ever scuba dive, dove, or skin dive, <laughs> divin, dove, English teachers, help me out here, and you've done it in a river, please let us know. We need to know. And send us pictures from your underwater camera. Uh, please. Yes, please, we but need to see that. She is supposed to go and meet John, and she's like, my father says that I'm never supposed to go and meet strange men, but John's fine. And I'm like, no, you met him the other day. You don't know that he's fine at all. 
Also, one of the things that confuses me is that, like, there are certain things that I feel like she needs her dad's permission for, and then there are certain things that she doesn't. And I'm not being critical of people who take on their parents' advice, but something that confused me about the first Nancy Drew book that I read for the podcast, it's like, how old is she supposed to be? I believe that in these versions, she's 18. And it's just confusing to me because I feel like sometimes she acts much older than 18, and sometimes she acts much younger than 18. And taking into account the fact that when these books were written, 18 probably looked very different than it does now. But still, I, I was like, it, when do you have to ask your dad if you can hang out with somebody versus when do you have to ask your dad if you can, like, do something even more dangerous? Yeah, confusing. I was confused about that as well. And I agree with you that the age of everyone is very murky. I mean, I was, I forgot when these books were set. And so I was surprised even that, Emily was getting married and and she was 20, which a lot of people get married young, but it kind of shook me out of, oh, like some of these girls are teenagers and some are about to get married. And it just felt confusing. I believe in the first iteration of the series, she was 16. I think that's what I read today. And then they aged her up in the new versions, which is interesting because I feel like the books, at least to my knowledge, have have garnered more of a following among younger readers like I think that these books are read predominantly by like 11 12 13 year old girls or even younger if they're if they're reading at that level so I thought it was interesting that they chose to age her up maybe at that time it was different I'm not sure but that was kind of a fun fact um and also changes of course the dynamics of like who Nancy is spending time with and how she's spending her time apparently she was never depicted as being in school which is kind of a fun fact like even when she was 16 I guess there was no mention of her being a student um and that's that got some criticism as far as like the classist piece of like why does she not have to go to school and she can just like galvan around in her car so her red convertible (laughs) her red convertible apparently in the new book she drives a blue hybrid oh great and that's that's good that's how i did contemporary (laughs) when i posted on my instagram that i was reading this i got quite a few messages as well which was interesting and fun but one person said yeah i loved these when i was a kid and i felt so grown up reading them and i think that that probably was how I felt as well, like, because it's a classic. And if you're 10 and reading a book about an 18 year old, you feel very grown up and she's very glamorous in her way. And so and even reading mysteries feels like an adult genre kind of. So I I bet a lot of girls have that feeling of just feeling very grown up reading Nancy Drew. I think that's fair. And while she is very dependent on others in some ways she reads very autonomous in others like even the fact that she's driving around all the time in this car I found a few articles that were talking about how all of these feminist critics over the last few decades have spent so much time trying to figure out like why she has remained such an icon even as people figure out that there are some things that are less enduring about her and one of the things that people talk about a lot is her car and the fact that she drives her car and not only does she drive her car but she drives her car in sometimes like perilous situations in this book she's like driven into a ditch and she has to like figure out how to get out of the ditch and of course there's always a friendly police officer available to help her but like there's a lot of scholarship out there about like her car and what level of autonomy that allows her at a time when maybe young readers weren't seeing that as much. That's really interesting. My literary analysis brain is just like firing with all that. I love it. Um, (laughs) I love that. And like you were saying about her asking her dad for permission for some things when in the previous chapter, she just went and did the thing. I can imagine that reading this as a kid, that wouldn't even register because you have to ask your parents permission to do every single thing. And just to have the autonomy and independence of having a car to drive around town or staying at an inn with your friend or driving three towns over to investigate something would feel like freedom. I mean, that would really, really seem like a big deal. And that's appealing to a young reader for sure. So I I guess even though in some ways she comes off as like not relatable to to young younger readers i guess there's there's an aspirational piece of it as well so when she gets to the end there's all of these weird things going on like things are out of control there have been ghost sightings there's rumors that the inn is haunted and of course nancy is like oh well i couldn't possibly get to the bottom of it but everybody's like you're a detective nancy Nobody can figure this out but you. Like, of course you will figure it out as the detective who has been in the newspaper for skin diving. (laughs) (laughs) 
a woman of so many talents. And again, like it's sort of hard for me to trace back like when one thing started and the next thing ended, but really things start to take a turn when this diamond thing starts. So as you both mentioned, there's this whole storyline about how Emily, Nancy's friend, is going to be inheriting her parents' jewels a bit early so that she can sell them and use that money to continue renovations with the inn and also to help pay for her wedding. So there's kind of this whole like ceremony around being given the diamonds. Her guardian is her Aunt Hazel. Hazel Willoughby, I believe, is her full name. And Aunt Hazel is like basically throwing like a diamond gifting party, which I was like, that sounds fun. Uh, yes, the traditional uh, yes. 21st birthday. <laughs> yes, like it wasn't a birthday party because her birthday is not for a little while. It was literally a party to give somebody diamonds. I would love to be invited. Happy birthday. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah, you're right. They and did. I was like, I, it was so weird because I was reading and I'm like, oh yeah, diamond party, sure. And then there, it said that they sang happy birthday and I was like, wait, it's not her birthday? What? Does she get two birthdays and all these diamonds? <laughs> yes. That's unreasonable. Absolutely unreasonable. So then there's a blackout in the diamond gifting party. And of course, in the dark, suddenly the diamonds disappear. Of course. And that's when our girl Nance is like, okay, you guys are right. I probably have to figure out what's going on. Well, first, Nancy, because she's such a good girl, was like, we should call the police. And Emily was like, no, I don't want to call the police. The police's role in this whole book was also very interesting. But can we talk a little bit about the police? It's an interesting conversation to be having right now, and it's something I thought a lot about as I was reading, because I would say on average there was a reference to a police officer like maybe every three to four pages would be my guess, especially in like the second two-thirds of the book, not so much at first. But not only are they mentioned constantly, but there's like multiple police characters like at all of these different levels of law enforcement in different areas that are all kind of on Nancy's side and it shocked me how active their role was in this story and I think we have to point it out right now given the conversations that we're having about policing and about racism and anti-racism and about some of the changes that need to be made in policing and and in the relationships that often police officers have with the communities that they police in. I would love if either of you would share your thoughts on that and and how it relates to Nancy. Yeah, I mean, I I really noticed that as well. It was hard to miss in one sense, but also I really wonder how much I would have been thinking about that if I'd read this a year ago and come mm-hmm. on the podcast for Nancy Drew book a year ago and I think part of it is, in terms of the storyline and the fact that we have a girl detective at this time, I think that they show her wanting to call the police a lot to show readers, like, it's okay that Nancy is doing this detective work because she always wants to give credit and have the real authorities step in. And so that kind of gives her permission to do the work she's doing. But this is definitely a book that not glamorizes, but really portrays police as very supportive of their communities, not just there to make arrests, but there to protect the community. And yeah, really, really paints police in a positive light. And I also find that so interesting because Carson Drew is a prosecutor Mm -hmm. and he's like got this great relationship with the police and can call them anytime that he wants them to protect his home or protect his daughter. And it almost makes it seem like the police are there to serve the Drew family, like anytime they make that call. But as a kid, I wouldn't have noticed that. I would have just thought, oh, like all of these police characters are such heroes and they're so nice to Nancy and her friends. And that I think is problematic unless, you know, we're having ongoing conversations about it as we're reading it. I agree. I think that this is a very now dated conception of of what like the neighborhood police officer's role is and if this could be the neighborhood police officer's role for everyone every single person in the community I think that would be great I think 
and again, I know that sometimes it, it, it's hard for listeners to hear us dive into these topics with respect to these kinds of books that are so beloved and, and are so old. Like we, it, I know that there's a part of a lot of listeners that are like, we can't necessarily think about a book written in 1930 by our 2020 standards. The point isn't to expect that a book written in 1930 would be written as if it were written in 2020. The point is to talk about how what we've learned since 1930 and since we all read it probably in the 90s has has now changed and shaped the way we're reading it now. So I want to be like very clear about that distinction. And for me, what was so obvious was that, it, like you said, Sarah, the police department seemed to be at Nancy's disposal. And in our world today and, and with the conversations that we're having now, it seems very clear to me that if Nancy were not a white, wealthy girl who who happened to have a father who is like a fixture of the community and like seems to have a lot of influence like I don't think that they would like casually pick up all of her calls or show up every time she called and it clearly shows this sense of privilege which is one of the criticisms that a lot of people have had of Nancy since its heyday or since the series is heyday is that like Nancy is allowed to be Nancy because she is white and rich and and free of like all obligations and responsibilities and so it's hard to discuss anything about this book without coming back to that like she's empowered to have this relationship with the police and to feel so safe like I feel like no matter what happened to her in this book and a lot of crazy shit happened to her in this book like she's literally like bound and gagged and like thrown into a submarine like and she thinks at that moment like maybe the river police will will come by (laughs) right her first thought is always like somebody will come save me and that's great and I think like in an ideal world we would all feel that way all the time but I don't think she ever like maybe there's one or two moments in this book where I felt like Nancy actually was like this is it like there's no way out more often than not it was like no like I'm sure there's some jurisdiction here where there's a police who can save me and it's just I think it's worth noting that like not everybody in 2020 feels that way about the police officers in their community. And that just felt very obvious to me in reading this book now. I totally agree with what both of you said and also was really irritated with the police chief mansplaining everything. Yeah. It's almost like Nancy calls them and then they come and they're like, you called us because this happened. And I wanted Nancy to go, yeah, that's why I called you. Or (laughs) yes, I'm a detective. I know. But it felt like she would make a discovery and the police came in and they were the ones who had to then explain the discovery to her. And that, I mean, it's picky, but it irritated me. I agree with you. I, I felt like they should be coming in and be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for pulling all of this evidence together for us. And instead they were like, oh no, no, let us repeat this back to you and like like Matt and I have this I'm not at all equating Matt to the men in this book but (laughs) we have this joke where like (laughs) this very annoying thing that Matt does is that sometimes I'll be like I'm trying to think of a good example but I'll be like oh should we like bake these for 20 minutes and he will like in all like he's not trying to be an asshole he's not trying to mansplain he'll be like yeah like 18 or 19 (laughs) and it happens all the time and it's because he is a very like precise kind of guy like he real like he's probably googling the thing that I'm asking him about and it says online 18 to 19 minutes and so that's what he's saying back to me but it felt like that was every that was going on throughout this whole book but in like a very sinister like not Matt kind of way where they were like well you've almost got it but like not quite so it's a good thing we're here to figure it out for you I kept expecting John to do more of that. Yeah. But at every turn, he was just like, Nancy, I'm so impressed by you. Nancy, you are such a great detective. You look great in your skin diving suit. Like he just kept (laughs) being really complimentary towards her. And I kept expecting to really hate him. And then I didn't. I was too busy being annoyed with the mansplaining police chief. Yeah. There's a lot of like weird power imbalances with adult men. And because Nancy is like an 18 year old young woman you can't like separate those dynamics from like any of the conversations she has with these men I do think it's really interesting and I I'm not really sure how I feel about it actually that most of the characters really believe Nancy when she tells them things Mm -hmm. like obviously I think that's great in the sense that believe women like if if Nancy says there was a ghost by the lilac bush, no matter how crazy it is, <laughs> let's let's believe her. But I also found it frustrating that the book 
didn't deal with the fact that women aren't often believed and that, you know, if Nancy wasn't the daughter of Carson Drew, maybe people wouldn't believe the things she was saying was happening. And so I found that that like a good example of why it's important to believe women. And I loved seeing that even most of the very powerful men took her at her word, but it felt dishonest to suggest that that's how this type of story would really work. Yeah, I don't think that any of her peers in this book, like I don't think if Emily or Helen had made some of these statements, I don't think that these men would have trusted her. And again, in reading some of these like theories about why Nancy has been so beloved for so many years, there's a lot out there about how like it's because men trust her and adults trust her and people take her word as gospel. And I do think that that's a really appealing aspect of her. But I guess I just wish there was more context for it. I would like to see her, <laughs> look at me being like, this is what I would like Nancy Drew to do. <laughs> I would like to see Nancy, and maybe this is what she's doing in these newer imaginings of her. Like, I would like to see her, it sounds weird, it, like prove parts of this. There are, th- there are certain things that you should not have to prove to be believed at all. But when you're like accusing people of crimes that really have nothing to do with you personally when it's not a crime committed against you or your body or yourself. It's just like your conjectures. I, I don't think it would have been so bad for Nancy to like show and prove her credibility because she clearly is credible. I'm not saying that she's not a strong, powerful, smart character. She is iconic. She's influenced so many powerful women over the years, over the decades. I really wanted to see more of that credibility in action because I think like, I guess I feel like we owe her that. I don't know. Yeah, she has street cred. She's been solving mysteries for a while and those are even acknowledged. People have been reading the newspaper. Everybody's always reading the newspaper in this book. Yeah. And Nancy is is a town hero, basically. But one of the tricky things is that part of what she's trying to prove in this book is her identity and someone's impersonating her. True. So it's like, who's the real Nancy and how do you prove that you're the real Nancy if your driver's license is stolen or you are talking to people who don't know you? And so it gets a little little murky here. I mean, especially because her dad, like, we're not sure that her dad could tell the difference between (laughs) her and her impersonator. (laughs) Listeners, there's a moment at the end of the book where Nancy and a Nancy impersonator are, like, (laughs) face to face. I think you guys are both Gilmore Girls fans, and so you'll understand the reference to Lorelai's dream when she has the dream about the real Paulenka and dog Paulenka looking at each other. (laughs) That's kind of how I imagine the Nancy Drew, fake Nancy Drew run-in going and the impersonator like has she has a vendetta against Carson Drew because he is the reason that she went to jail many years before and so she's like trying to pretend to be Nancy and she's like hey dad like I missed you and she goes like running up to him and we don't know for sure that he seems confused but like the book doesn't tell us that he seems confused so I'm led to believe that he is like Maybe that's my kid because the real Nancy's like, dad, stop. That's not me. Like he needs to be told. Yeah. And the real Nancy like takes her hand and smudges fake Nancy's makeup. So that's how she proves that she's the real Nancy is that other Nancy is wearing a lot of makeup to make her look like Nancy. And then I do think, I think Carson Drew says, I wasn't sure which was which until I got (laughs) up close or something. It's like that, that seems wrong. Yeah, it seemed uh, questionable. And then, like, they look and sound so much alike that John McBride was fully fooled into thinking that fake Nancy was asking him out on a date. It just, (laughs) this must be a really good actress we're dealing with. I mean, I know that, I know that Gay, the actress, is, like, a legitimately famous actress, but (laughs) I don't know. Impersonation feels like a whole other level of talent. Absolutely. And she plays, like, four different roles throughout the course of the book, and nobody pieces that together she just keeps showing up in different wigs with different stage makeup i guess and yeah she knows she's she's great she's talented i did think she was an interesting character like i liked the idea of this like glamorous actress who has gone from like riches to rags and then is trying to get back to riches again like i thought that was a really interesting idea and i liked the fact that we had a little bit of backstory and that she has this 
resentment toward the Drew family, and so she targets Nancy, and she kind of, like, rallies her whole group around this jewel theft so that she can get Emily's diamonds and make some money back for herself, and she's also, like, stealing Nancy's identity to, like, buy things at the store because back then, like, you had charge plates, which is sort of, it's not a credit card, but it's, like, an early version of that, and she manages to steal Nancy's to buy things. So I thought that that was actually really interesting. Again, as somebody who doesn't read a ton of mysteries now, I can see how that storyline, if it were developed a little bit differently and maybe fleshed out more, it could be, like, a really compelling story. Yeah. yeah, if it had stopped there and that was the mystery. But there were so many other criminals and people involved and it got so complicated. And as this was coming out at the end, you figure out who gay is. But then these other side characters that you kind of had hints at just show up out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden there's this other like military mission that John was running the whole time. And there's a relationship to gay there. There's all sorts of strange stuff going on. And it was just like an information dump at the end of the book instead of all of these things slowly coming to light. It was just like hints, 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 bad stuff happens. And then here's how all of it is wrapped up and tied together. But I still couldn't follow it. <laughs> yeah, it was just exposition at the end with all of these other characters coming in. And I I was frustrated by that because the whole time I was reading, I was thinking, man, like mysteries are such a great way to help kids become good readers because you have to make inferences, you have to pick up on details. And I still believe that. And I think that that was a really fun insight to make while reading this. Like, because you're trying to track this mystery, you pay attention to things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. And that is really a good reading strategy. But then at the end, it was like, it didn't matter how close of attention you were paying. You wouldn't have guessed that all of these random characters, there was a gang of like six people or something who were pulling off this crime. And most of those details didn't ultimately matter. And I think that's what was frustrating for me is that like, I love a convoluted novel. I think it's great when there's a million characters and you have to figure out how they're all connected to each other. But it just didn't feel like there was a purpose for that in this book it was just like the author had a lot of ideas about how to like add more members to the cast of this book and in the end it, it just didn't tie together so I think there are a lot of things that were probably very exciting to kid readers in this book some really cool characters some interesting backstories some like kind of unique motivations from the characters but it just all got really confusing I wanted to talk about one more piece of, of the classist element of this book. I mean, there's a lot of it, but we had referred to it earlier, and there was one scene that really brought that to light for me in this book, and that's when Nancy drives... To, I, I've lost track of all the different cities that she drives to, but she drives to some city to try to find Mary Mason, who used to work at the Lilac Inn, and she's suspicious of Mary. And she drives to this other neighborhood, this other city, and it's very clear in the author's description that it's, like, not a nice area. And this is the first time we've read about a setting in this book that's not described as beautiful and like floral and green and just like clearly wealthy. So I just wanted to call that out because it was very clear to me in the way that this scene was described that like she's in a bad part of town. But then hilariously, like the author describes Mary Mason's house as like not as out of sorts <laughs> as the other houses in the neighborhood. Like it was like, yeah, Nancy's in a quote unquote bad neighborhood, but she's not going to like a scary house in the bad neighborhood. But I, I again, like it's just this, it's disappointing to see that we as readers are, are meant to believe that like the state of this neighborhood is a sign of the fact that like she's clearly on to the person who's responsible for this terrible crime. Like, one should not equal the other. And it was just very obvious to me that that was kind of what we were meant to believe. I will say that I discovered that the 1930 edition of this book originally had a lot more racist slurs associated with this scene and with, like, her mission to find all of these different people. And so they did take those out for what that's worth. Yeah, I found that scene extremely problematic and I think they describe the neighborhood as tenements. And Hannah, who is Nancy's live-in housekeeper, is the one who warns Nancy, oh, Nancy, that's a bad neighborhood. Take someone with you when you go. Yeah, I, I, that was the scene, I think, that started getting me thinking about how classist this book was. 
And then I was, even though I thought that the reveal about Gay Moreau and being an actress and going to prison and then seeking revenge was interesting and could have been fleshed out more to make it more interesting, I thought that was really classist as well. At one point, one of the characters is talking about Gay and says, once success came her way, she spent all her earnings on luxuries, but Gay couldn't stop buying expensive things. I guess she figured forgery was the easiest way to get more money. And Mm. it's like, she's being condemned for wanting nice things, and she didn't earn those nice things. Unlike Nancy, who was born rich and therefore earned, quote unquote, her charge plate at the department store. And even the contrast between Gay, who wants money so she can buy furs and clothes, and Emily, the good girl, who's inheriting these diamonds, but she's going to use them to invest in a business, which is what you should do with your wealth. I I found all of that really pretty gross. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was icky. I think that there's even a comment about Gay having grown up poor. Yeah, there was. And that that's why she didn't know how to manage her money once she got all of her wealth from acting. And that was especially gross. Yeah, those references were not great. Um, And I think it's important that we call them out because that is part of the larger Nancy dialogue. One thing that I I really loved that I wanted to mention before we start to wrap things up is I actually really liked the last sentence of the book, which I didn't expect to. I go back and forth about whether or not I think Nancy sort of holds up as a feminist icon. And I don't mean that to upset anybody who holds her in that regard, because I do feel like she was a trailblazer and that there were not characters like her when the book came into being. And who knows what characters we would be missing today if there had never been a Nancy Drew. And I don't discredit any of that, but it's clear that we look for different kinds of feminist heroes now. So not to discredit her when she first came into being all these years ago, but it is a more complicated conversation now. Excuse the page turning, but I I really liked the fact that on the last page, we are on the eve of Emily's wedding and the girls are kind of talking about like going steady and who has a boyfriend and they're teasing Nancy about having a steady. And Nancy says, for the present, my steady partner is going to be mystery. (laughs) which felt very refreshing in the context of a lot of the other things that we've talked about. I love how cheesy it is. Like, I love the cheesiness of that sentence, but it is so, so good. And like you said, it is refreshing. And I actually thought it was kind of nice that, you know, the setup for this book was that Nancy and Helen were going to be bridesmaids and they were going to help Emily with wedding stuff. But wedding stuff was never really mentioned throughout until really that last couple of paragraphs when it was the setup for Nancy to deliver that amazing line. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I loved that line. And I, I hadn't really thought about that, Chelsea. That's a really good point that like, we know they're on their way to help with this wedding stuff. But it's not like we spend pages sitting around with them while they talk about wedding details. So that is refreshing. Yeah, very good point. So you both have been guests on the show before. You know what's coming. On the whole, how has this experience of reading Nancy Drew in 2020 held up to your experience reading it when you were growing up? Has it disappointed you? Has it has it held up? Like, where do you stand there? I, I wouldn't say that it disappointed me because I was expecting to have issues with my adult reading of this book and I knew it wasn't going to be the same, but it was definitely different. And it is fun to think about how much I've grown as a reader. And I mean, I'm going to be thinking about how Nancy has influenced my reading life for a while. It was fun to go back and visit, but I am not like, I don't feel the warm fuzzies like, oh, now I'm going to go pick up more of these mysteries to read for the nostalgia. I don't really feel like I need to read them. I'm content to just let them sit on the shelf, these pretty 1960s editions, and let them be memories rather than books that I want to revisit for the warmth and nostalgia. That seems very fair to me. What about you, Sarah? I enjoyed my read. Again, it was a wild ride and had a ton of fun talking about it. So I'm really grateful that I revisited it, but I had a lot more issues with it than I anticipated. And so overall, I'd have to say it was a disappointment. Like I said, I I went in expecting to have issues with gender and how the girls were described and all of that. And then 
to have all of these class issues come up and issues surrounding how the police were portrayed. I think it's maybe more problematic than I expected. I wouldn't say like, I would never let my child read these or I wouldn't put them in my classroom or anything like that. I just, there are more conversations that need to happen around reading Nancy Drew books than I would have expected. Like it needs more unpacking than I think just handing it to a kid and hoping they love it. Yeah, they're very of their time. Maybe not so effective in our time, but still classic. And again, I want to make it very clear to all the the major Nancy Drew fans out there, to the women in particular who were so inspired by her. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oprah, Sandra Day O'Connor, like all of these really powerhouse women have talked about how Nancy Drew impacted them and inspired them. And, and I'm not here to discredit that or to pretend that she doesn't deserve that kind of icon status. But we can also have these conversations and those two things can live simultaneously. So there is my wrap-up of Nancy Drew. I know you both always have a ton of book recommendations. Before we sign off, I would love for you to share a book or two that you've read lately that you would recommend to our listeners. Chelsea, do you want to go first? Can I share an upcoming title that kind of has to do with Nancy Drew? You can. Okay, so full disclosure, I haven't read this one, but I have it downloaded from NetGalley, and I'm really excited about it. I heard the author talk about it, and he was really engaging. This is Escaping Dreamland by Charlie Lovett, and it publishes actually probably shortly after this episode will air. It publishes September 22nd, as of right now, assuming that's not going to change. But it revolves around a character who was obsessed with the Hardy Boys when he was a kid. And it's this literary mystery and it takes place in New York and sort of goes back and forth through time. And it centers around these authors who were basically the ghostwriters for books like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. So it's inspired by those books, but it sort of goes through Gilded Age New York. And like I said, a bunch of different time periods. It's basically a love story for readers. Like it's a book about books, which is what Charlie Lovett does. Those are the kinds of books that he writes. He was an antiquarian bookseller for a while and he's a scholar. And so I just think that this book is going to be really fun. I'm so glad that I did revisit Nancy Drew before reading Escaping Dreamland. So I'm excited to read that and get some fun fictional history, but it will have been inspired by the real literary history. So that's Escaping Dreamland by Charlie Lovett. That's the perfect recommendation. And I can't wait to hear about your review of it because I want to check it out now. Thank you for sharing. So I have been, I'm on the selection committee for a lit prize right now, the Aspen Words lit prize. So all of my reading Lately, I'm not really allowed to talk about until October. <laughs> confidential. Like, like John yeah, McBride. You're like, it's confidential. I can't talk about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say one book I read for the prize that I'd love to see more people pick up is Members Only by Samir Pandaya. It's a book about an Indian American man who's a member of this very white tennis club. And it takes place over a very terrible week of his life when he's accused of being racist by the members in his tennis club. And he's accused of being anti-American by the white students at the university he teaches at. And it's just about the unraveling of all of that. So that's members only. And then, Allie, you'll love this. Last night, I was just feeling sad. I don't know what. No, for no real reason. It's just, you know, quarantine is a roller coaster. And I picked up the first book in the Silver Blades series. Yeah. Which I was a figure skater growing up and I adored these books as a kid because I think in part, well, mostly because they're all about skating, but then there was that kind of insiderness of like, that's not how that really works. (laughs) (laughs) She wouldn't be able to land that jump after a week kind of snarkiness that came with reading it as a figure skater. And I, I just sat down, I read it in like 45 minutes and it was so sweet and fun. And I loved just being completely nostalgic for being a kid and a figure skater. 
and a reader. <laughs> I love that you did that. What a good solution for being sad in quarantine. That's sometimes all you need. Just like just a little boost. Sometimes it really does help. But members only sounds really good too. So I will include links to both of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Nancy Drew number four, The Mystery at Lilac Inn, and a link to Novel Pairings, your incredible podcast and your bookstagrams. Although I feel like most of our readers should be following you. If they're not, just what are you waiting for? Go follow Chelsea and Sarah. They're two of my very, very, very favorite people to follow and two of my very favorite people in general. So thank you both so much for coming back on the show, for doing another wild ride with me. I feel like this conversation was much different than both of the conversations I had had with the two of you previously, which were much more nostalgic. I felt like they were much more like warm and fuzzy. I agree. But this was so much fun. It was more fun. <laughs> it was yeah. so fun. I love this. Thanks for having us, Allie. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye, Allie. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>